Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome to the podcast. We try to make Game Changers the podcast you turn to when you want to know the latest about pharmacotherapy. Uh, That's really our niche here in the uh, ecosystem of medical podcasts. We really want to focus on general pharmacotherapy and and some of the issues that boots on the ground pharmacists and boots on the ground providers have to deal with every day. Thank you for listening. Um, If you are a new listener, if you're a long time listener. Thanks for hanging on with us. Very honored this week to welcome a guest a star on the program. And our guest star uh, this week is a colleague of mine, Drake, and, and a good friend, uh, Dr. Anissa Hansen. So Anissa, welcome to the program. Good morning. I'd like to just add that my pronouns are she, her, hers. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And that I couldn't think of a better way to, to start. So Anissa, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. I am a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University, and my clinical practice site is at Lutheran Hospital in mental health, and I work with both adolescents and adults in inpatient and outpatient setting. Excellent. And the other thing that Dr. Hansen has long been passionate about, and, and that's is true on, on the campus of Drake as well as Lutheran, is, is inclusion and diversity issues. And as such, she's I, I think she's certainly an expert in this when it, and when it comes to this and issues of mental health. And she's actually with uh, a uh, another expert with uh, uh, Sean Rogers actually having a, a CE Impact a CE program coming up on gender-affirming therapy for transgender and gender non-conforming patients. And so we thought with that, coming up. I think we kind of decided this would be a great time to kind of do a kind of an overall review of some of the issues surrounding gender affirming care. And this is something that I am absolutely going to you know, admit, you know, a lot of the times when we do these podcasts, I feel like I know at least a little bit about what's going on, sometimes a lot. Uh, this is something that I don't know very much about. And so I'm very grateful to 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 Aniso to, to, to taking time to come up on this. And so before we get started on just kind of talking about therapy and stuff, there's a lot of terminology that kind of gets floated around out there that I'll admit I'm not very up on. And so uh, I think a lot of the listeners probably aren't either. If you could give us a little little background, Anissa, on some of the different terminology as far as sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, and sex to sex assigned at birth, because I know there, there's some differences there. Can you tell us just, you know, kind of the highlights of those and, and what are some pearls that I think that practitioners and you need to kind of know? Right. Sex assigned at birth refers to anatomical, hormonal, and chromosomal characteristics of an infant. And so in most instances, an infant is assigned either male, male, female, or intersex. So it's important to note that sex and gender are distinctly different. Right. Okay. And so that makes sense, certainly. So, and then sexual orientation is, what's your definition of that? What's a good definition of that, you think? Yeah, typically we have an acronym for that is LGBTQIA+. Uh, So the L stands for lesbian, so a sexual orientation where women are primarily attracted to women. Gay, uh, sexual orientation where men are primarily attracted to men. 
bisexual for the B, um, emotional, physical, sexual, or spiritual attraction to both your own gender and another. Queer, umbrella term for those that don't identify as heterosexual, straight, or cisgender. Queer used to be a fairly derogatory term in the past. Now there's a little more ownership of this in the LGBTQ population. So saying this in an affirmative way uh, can be appropriate. Uh, pansexual is an attraction regardless of gender, uh, asexual spectrum of little or no, uh, sexual attraction, uh, to others or lack of interest in others. Uh, and we'll go into transgender a bit more when we talk about gender identity. Which is great. That's a good one. And I think that this is the one in particular that I think I struggle a little bit about is, you know, what's the definition of gender identity and then, you know, cis versus transgender. And again, as some of some of the terminology is a bit confusing to me. And I, and I know that it's not like, again, it's non-binary, right? So it's not like you are cisgender, you are trans. I know it's kind of a spectrum. So what's kind of your definition of that? And how do we approach that? Right. So gender identity refers to one's innermost concept of self. So it's masculine or feminine or a blend of both or really neither. Um, so the neither is close to that gender non-conforming or non-binary. Uh, cisgender is an individual whose gender aligns with their sex assigned at birth. And transgender is an individual whose gender identity does not align with their sex assigned at birth. Sometimes we use the terminology for a transgender man as AFAB, and we might use the terminology AMAB for a transgender woman, and then non-binary or gender non-conforming will see GNC. Excellent. All right. And then finally, gender expression. So what, what does that refer to? Gender expression refers to the external expressions of one's gender identity. So you can think of behaviors, you can think of clothing, grooming, communication. So how an individual chooses to express that gender identity may not conform with socially defined behaviors or characteristics typically associated with masculine or feminine. Got it. So excellent. Well, thank you very much. So I think that does help me. And I think it probably helps all listeners who are sometimes a little bit confused about the definitions here. And then that's, a, I think, a good segue into talking about, you know, pronouns. And again, I'm not interested in discussing the politics surrounding this. You know, the bottom line is that if you're a healthcare practitioner, in my opinion, you know, our job is to provide the best care we can to our patients. And to do that, we have to understand our patients. And you, despite what your politics and your personal views on this may be, the bottom line is that providing good care means you know, understanding and, and being empathetic and sympathetic toward patients. And the only way to do that is to understand them. So, you know, let's not, we're not going to dive into the sometimes I think, you know, very onerous, you know, politics about, you know, calling people certain pronouns or not. In your opinion, you know, Anissa, you know, how do you approach this in your practice? Because I'm sure you're much better at this when you're talking to patients than I am, and I should be better at this. So what's kind of your thoughts on that? Well, I have a couple thoughts. One thing that we can do in practice is wear our own pronoun pin. That can be helpful to show individuals that we're welcoming to hear their pronouns. I know I do a lot of group type medication education. And so I ask people when they go around and say their first names, I also ask them if they're comfortable, they can share their pronouns because pronouns are really part of the social affirmation process for individuals. And it's a way for us to show respect. And so it can be important to acknowledge someone's identity, to show them respect in the healthcare process. 
I completely agree with you. And, and you want to talk a little bit more about the different types of affirmation. You know, you mentioned social affirmation. We'll be talking about medical affirmation here in just a minute with the pharmacotherapy associated with this, but other thoughts on social affirmation and legal affirmation of patients. Right. Social affirmation really includes coming out and disclosing one's gender identity. It can be using a chosen name as opposed to a legal name, and it's using those pronouns. For legal affirmation, it's usually a legal change on medical and insurance documents, birth certificates, licenses, passports, financial records, tax documents. Um, And then that medical affirmation is really what we're talking about today is that gender affirming hormone therapy, as well as gender affirming surgery, although we're not going to go into the surgery talk today or topic today. Right. So that really helps as well. I like the idea of the pronoun pin. And in fact, Dr. Hansen knows this because uh, our, we, our new academic year for, for rotation students started earlier this week. And uh, so we, her and I both got new students on rotation. And I've actually, two of my three students I noticed uh, just yesterday have pins with that, that declare their pronouns. And I think that's a really good idea. And I think without beating a horse to death, you know, going over and over. And I think it's a nice nonverbal way to say, hey, look, you know, I'm aware of this. And I think it's it's a nice visual cue, even for me, if I were to wear one to say, okay, look, I got to be thinking about this sort of thing. So that makes a lot of sense. I quite like that. So, all right. So, you know, I, I think that's really helpful. I think I think there's a lot of terminology, a lot of issues surrounding this. And, and again, I'm the first to admit that I am not very good at this and need to be better at it. And so this really helps helps me and I think it will help a lot of listeners. So now we're going to pivot a little bit and talk about, you know, issues surrounding the medical affirmation. So the use of, of pharmacotherapy to help with gender affirmation or being part of the team that, that help uh, with that gender identity and gender expression to, to get patients to where they really want to be. And I think, um, and I'm sure, again, Anissa, you probably know the literature much better than I do. I'm sure there is a whole host of mental health issues. I know for I know from what I've just read, just in the lay literature, that these patients are at much higher risk of mental health issues and suicide. And so this is not something that I think should be, you know, thought about as, well, you know, they don't really need to do that or whatever. I mean, this should be therapy, you know, as, you know, as real and as pertinent as any other therapy. And so I think, I think, you know, again, even if you're not the endocrinologist who's specifically prescribing these medications, I think we all need to be aware about it the same way we need to be aware of someone with hyperlipidemia being prescribed a statin, whether or not you're the person who prescribed the statin, you know, you, you need, we need to understand some of the pearls surrounding that. We're kind of lean into kind of the point of this podcast, which of course is is, is medical affirmation and using a hormonal therapy primarily, uh, though, uh, uh, as we talked about earlier, surgery does play a role as well. We're more of a pharmacotherapy for our podcast, so that's what we're going we're gonna to be talking about. And so the first thing we want to talk about is hormone therapy for non-binary individuals. Looking over some of the notes that you have, you know that the goal of this is to balance testosterone and estrogen levels. So what are some of your thoughts about this type of therapy? What are our goals? And as I'm, if I'm a pharmacist or a provider, what do I need to monitor for or, or counsel patients on, do you think? Right. And I think what uh, something to step back and just share with the listeners is that all the medications that we talk about for non-binary and gender non-conforming individuals is still considered off-label. So although they're well studied and there's some strong data around this and guidelines around this, just something to kind of step back and think about hormone therapy for non-binary individuals, really the most important thing that the healthcare team can do with our patients is discuss the goals of therapy because we're either adding testosterone or we're adding estrogens in different ways, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later here. 
Um, the main goal is monitor levels, but the goal might be to balance testosterone and estrogen, or depending on what how the individual identifies and how they want to visibly look, we may actually have some levels that may be subtherapeutic. So the main goal of, of again, of non-binary individuals is really what their goal is and how they want to appear. Okay, and that, and so that's excellent. That really helps. A good point too, that pointing out that some of these therapies are going to be non-FDA approved. And I have no doubt that adding to the struggles of these patients, uh, getting some of this therapy approved by insurance, I'm sure is a struggle. And not only from an insurance perspective, but as we know, and this has been in the news, I think a lot lately is that there are, you know, several states in the, in the country that are, you know, blocking or severely limiting gender affirming therapy, uh, especially pharmacotherapy. And again, we're not a, we're not a political Political podcast, so we're not going to dive into that. But I think that just makes things, you know, that much harder for these patients, unfortunately. And and you know, it's just it's sad to see that happening. So let's move on then to talking about masculinizing. I'm not going. I'm going to have to practice saying that hormone therapy, and of course, that's going to involve primarily testosterone, but also medroxyprogesterone. So tell me a little bit, you know, about what what kind of the you know yeah the effect is, what what we think the desired effects are, and what we should expect as far as timing and things along those lines. Sure. The effect is hopefully producing male secondary sex characteristics while suppressing the female secondary sex characteristics. That's why we tend to call this um, gender affirming hormone therapy instead of replacement therapy. So that could be a terminology uh, that is important to use as well. Typically the desired effects of masculinizing therapy is the deepening of voice, body fat redistribution, increased muscle Um, increased libido, facial and body hair growth, and a reduction in breast size. Um, Another goal is menses sensation. And it's always important to note, depending on uh, sexual practices, just because somebody is not having a period doesn't mean they can't become pregnant. So being aware of that might be one reason we do that, medroxyprogesterone. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And so timing of the effects, because I mean, obviously it's, it's, this is, you know, they're not going to start this and next week have these issues. I'm sure it takes months for this stuff to occur. Right. So just picking out maybe a couple ones that are most important to individuals would be that uh, deepening of voice is the onset's usually six to 12 months, but it really takes about one to two years to see that maximum effect. The body fat redistribution, typically around one to six months, maximum uh, effect two to five years. And then if we think of that hair growth, um, so both facial and body hair starts around six to 12 months uh, and then can have that maximum effect around four to five years. And then what's really become, you know, in the news and more kind of sports related is that increase in muscle mass. So six to 12 months is that onset, but two to five years is that maximum effect. And that whole other dimension to this that you're right has definitely been in the news a lot. So of course, you know, even I'm aware of the fact that testosterone can be given about 12 million ways, right? And most of it, of course, non-oral. In your opinion, is there one that endocrinologists for gender affirming therapy like to use? Is Is there any literature showing one's better than another? Is it pretty much just a a patient preference? I think it's uh, mainly patient preference. I do see subcutaneous injections probably used the most. And then, uh, you know, the long-term subcutaneous injections or the implants, those are more long-term. If individuals have have said, yes, this, this masculinizing therapy is for me, Um, I'm pretty committed to making these changes, then we'll see those injections or pellets. However, if somebody is just kind of 
trying it out, um, we might see the patches or gels to start with. That makes sense. So, and again, it, it's important to note that since the goal is, is, is what the patient wants for affirming therapy, they get to set kind of the rules of, you know, yeah, okay, this is, this is what I thought was going to happen or no, that's not really what I was looking for. So maybe we shouldn't, you know, maybe we'll go a different route. So that that's important to note too. So side effects. I mean, I'm not the one that always beat that was beat into my head, even in, in pharmacy school, many, many years ago was elevated liver enzymes. Is there anything else we need to watch out for? For the masculizing therapy, we also think of that erythrocytosis, uh, especially if our testosterone levels are too high. That's why we like to monitor that. Hypertension, we think about perhaps elevated liver enzymes, and you kind of touched on this, but also the kind of that coronary artery disease. So something definitely to watch out for as we go there. Uh, lab monitoring, I would assume that you're going to check for testosterone levels, obviously, but how often should we, this person's got a primary care physician, what should they be monitoring as far as labs are concerned? Yeah, so testosterone, basically we test at three, six, and 12 months, and then kind of yearly as needed as we're kind of stable on a therapy. Uh, what we're looking for in a range for transgender men is 400 to 700 uh, nanograms per deciliter. But if we're looking for a typical range for a cisgender um, man, it's 300 to 1,000. So again, for that transgender man, it's 400 to 700. And we're monitoring for subtherapeutic levels. Um, we can also draw an estradiol, uh, which we'd like uh, less than 50 picograms per milliliter, but you just draw that as needed. Got it. So, and then for side effects, you know, I, I, again, I would assume we check LFTs and then you mentioned that, you know, some of the lipid profile changes, anything else should we be checking on those? Yeah, usually we're monitoring those on the USPSTF recommendations. Right. Uh, we'll monitor a CBC, so hem, uh, hemoglobin and hematocrit. Um, we might monitor the hematocrit more often, kind of the baseline six, 12 months, and then yearly. Makes sense. Um, you know, again, I'm old enough to remember just when erythropoietin had first come out for renal function or for patients with chronic kidney disease. And before that, testosterone was actually one of the treatments for, you know, anemia of renal disease. And sometimes it pushed patients, uh, you know, hemoglobins into the 18, 19 range. And then that's not good either. So, I mean, you know, too low is, is bad, but too high is certainly bad as well. So then let's talk a little bit about feminizing therapy. And so obviously this is going to be mostly estradiol. Tell me again, a little bit, just like we did with testosterone therapy, you know, what are some of the desired effects? What, what are we kind of looking for? Yeah, your goal is to aid in the development of female secondary sex characteristics and minimize those male secondary sex characteristics. So we'll see estradiol used typically in an oral patch or injection. For desired effects, we can see voice changes, body fat redistribution, decreased hair growth, um, some breast development, um, and reduced testicle size. Uh, and then for some timing of those desired effects, decreased muscle mass is typically around three to six months with that maximum of one to two years. Breast growth really takes around three to six months for onset, a maximum about two to three years. Uh, we have some slowed hair growth, both facial and body hair. So onset six to 12 months, again, maximum effect probably takes three years or greater. Um, and those are some of the main, perhaps, timing of those desired effects. Excellent. Again, like testosterone, estradiol, I know it comes again as a variety of, of forms. Is oral a little more common in this thing, or do they still use injections and patches and stuff more for gender-affirming therapy? Yeah, actually, we can see all three. I would say 
oral tends to be easy for patients. Right. Um, the injection, sometimes people don't want an injection. They might not want to give themselves an injection at home, but those oral tablets, which can and actually be swallowed whole, or they could be a sublingual either way. Um, okay. Those tend to be the easiest. And then I just want to point out, since I mentioned estradiol at first, we also can use spironolactone. I noticed that in, in your handout as well. Uh, would that be just basically for just breast development primarily, or is that of other functions as well? We're also looking for the anti-androgen. Ah, um, okay. All right. that. So just with that one, we want to make sure we remember kind of checking those potassium levels, right. baseline kidney function, realizing that it is a diuretic. So if we're thinking about individuals that play sports, you know, some of the NCAA rules. Yeah, it wouldn't allow them to be on that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's that again, another a whole other dimension, which I'll bet you we could do an entire other podcast on is some of the sports medicine, you know, uh, effects of this. So that, that, that's quite interesting. And then when we counsel patients who are taking estrogen for like birth control or uh, perimenopausal therapy, we worry about venous thromboembolism. Is that something we have to worry about here too? Yes, we do um, make sure we monitor for that. Just to check in for those DVTs or PEs. Absolutely. Excellent. And then finally, you know, lab therapy for these patients, what are our goals and, and what are some of the other labs we'd want to be doing if you're a provider? Yeah, well, well, we'll test estradiol. And so a typical range for gender forming hormone therapy and the typical goal range for actually cisgender women is 100 to 200 picograms per deciliter. But remembering that the timing of the draw is really important. So oral, we do about two hours after injection. You do about mid-dose. Sublingual, you do about four hours after, just for a couple examples. Uh, and then you could also test uh, testosterone basically for just efficacy for the individuals. Excellent. And then well, we don't have to worry private, but quite so much about LFTs and things like that. But my guess is, is we'd want to, again, especially if they're on spironolactone, as you mentioned, checking creatinine, checking potassium, that makes sense. Um, any other, other labs we'd have to keep an eye on it for? Typically we do a CMP at baseline. You can also do lipid profile, fasting glucose, but you base, those are really based on the USPSTF recommendations. And you might check bone mineral density if individuals are on that medroxyprogesterone. Yeah, which makes sense. So, well, that's that's terrific. I mean, and that's a lot of a lot of really good information. So I really appreciate you doing that. Is there any other associations, any or any last minute thoughts you have? I mean, again, I'm you know we could probably do, and you probably could teach an entire course on this. And I'm sure we need that information. Who, if you want more information on this, who would you recommend that we turn to? Any organizations out there or anything like that? Uh, sure. There's a standard of care document by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. It's an excellent article. There's also some journal publications currently from the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism that you could look. And then UCSF has some transgender care uh, websites and information. So those would be the three main articles and associations to refer you to. Excellent. And again, I want to point out that yourself are going to be doing, I think, a much more in-depth look at all of this in, in your CE coming up with Sean Rogers. And again, that's your CE impact as well. So again, I, I definitely encourage uh, the listeners, if you want more information about this, and if you, I think you probably should get more information on this, you really should check out that CE program coming up. So uh, Anissa, I really want to thank you again. Um, I appreciate you taking your time. Your expertise in this is, is invaluable. So, so thank you for taking the time to, to be on Game Changers. Hopefully we can dissuade you from doing this. We can have you come on sometime in the future talking about some other mental health issues. 
Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thanks again. Uh, that's it for this week of Game Changers. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. But remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Thanks for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com, where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.